the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Homestead National Historical Park near Beatrice, Nebraska, really isn't that big, just 211 acres. But as the saying goes, it plays much, much bigger. Here you'll find the National Museum on homesteading, historic buildings, including the Palmer Eppard log cabin that, despite its small size, just 14 feet by 16 feet, was home to a family of 12, along with agricultural equipment, genealogy research opportunities, an education center, hiking trails through 100 acres of restored tall grass prairie, and a burr oak forest. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. On a warm late June day, I caught up with Jonathan Fairchild, the park historian, to learn a little bit more about Daniel Freeman, the man generally accepted to have been the very first to take advantage of the Homestead Act. Freeman claimed the 160 acres in what at the time was the Nebraska Territory on January 1st, 1863, the day the Homestead Act that Congress had passed the year before took effect. Freeman, who was a Union soldier at the time, didn't settle on the land until the end of the Civil War in 1865 and lived there until he died in 1908. Those 160 acres are the bulk of the setting for the historical park, though it's much changed from how it appeared during Freeman's life there. The National Park Service acquired the property in the 1930s and restored the farmed acres to Tallgrass Prairie. In a minute, I'll be back to take you across this landscape with Jonathan. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or Park Store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures.
This is a beautiful park, Jonathan. I mean, I'm, I'm from the southwest where it's dry and arid and, and earth tones are everywhere and, and this is lush and I can feel the humidity. Um, <laughs> what can you tell me about this setting here at Homestead? So here at Homestead National Historical Park, we're located on the 160-acre homestead of Daniel Freeman. And the reason the park is located here is that Daniel Freeman was the first person to claim land under the Homestead Act of 1862. Now, we're on Daniel Freeman's homestead site, but the name of the park isn't, you know, Daniel Freeman National Historic Site, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about the homesteading story, not just here in Southeast Nebraska, but across the 30 homesteading states from Florida all the way to Alaska. So um, let's pause for a second on, on Daniel Freeman. He, he was the first one to take advantage of the Homestead Act? That's right. So he claimed his homestead on January 1st, 1863, right at midnight, right as the law took effect. Was he from Southeast uh, Nebraska or the, the territory or whichever it was back then? No, so he was uh, serving in the Civil War and happened to be in the area and before he got orders to move out, uh, he wanted to stake his claim to make sure that he got this exact parcel. And what attracted him to this parcel? So this 160 acres here, uh, he felt that he had everything that he would need to be successful in meeting the requirements of the law, proving up it's called, mm -hmm. to receive his deed to the land. So it had plenty of prairie that he could farm on. Mm -hmm. It had plenty of trees for lumber to build things. And it had a creek. And he, he was in the Civil War? He was. Uh, north or south? Union. Union. Uh, where was he from? So he was originally from uh, Ohio. Mm -hmm. This landscape attracted him. Um, was he familiar with the area before? He was stationed in the area for some time. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So yeah. that, that was his introduction to it. Um, That's right. With the Union Army. Yeah. And uh, how, long, how long did he live here? So he lived the rest of his life here, uh -huh. uh, so claimed his homestead in 1863 and passed away in 1908, so 45 years. 45 years. And uh, did he have any descendants that uh, held on to the land? He did. So his wife lived here until she passed away in 1929, I believe. And then uh, after she passed away, a few years later, we became a park in 1936. Wow. Wow. And so his original uh, cabin site is up here? Yeah, we're actually not too far from it. Uh, over the years, the family had a few different cabins and houses. So there was a squatter's cabin that was here when he first arrived, and he sort of negotiated the rights to the land with that squatter. And then shortly after that, built a log cabin that would have been right over there. Mm -hmm. And then finally, they had a brick house right in that direction. Okay, so I'm curious. Um, I'm, I'm a writer. Um, 160 acres is a quarter section. So did he have to survey that 160 acres, or did he have to get somebody to come out and survey it? Yeah, so under the public land survey system, uh, before someone could legally acquire title to the land, it had to be surveyed by the U.S. federal government. And I mentioned that squatter, right? You, you could be on the land, but not legally before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all land in the public domain 
had to be surveyed before it could be homesteaded, purchased, uh, acquired under um, veterans, land rights, whatever you're acquiring that land under, it did have to be surveyed first. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so was, was Daniel had to hire a surveyor, or was this part of the, the act that the federal government provided the, the surveyor skills, as it were? Right. The federal government would provide a surveying team to go out and survey the land. And so Daniel would come out and say, this is where I want to um, homestead, you know, would he provide the rough boundaries and then the surveyors would, would finalize it? Uh, so the surveyors would provide the boundaries under that public land survey system. Uh, it's sort of like a, a building block. Uh, the whole country, most of the country is surveyed under that system. Uh, there would be 36 sections in a township. Each section, uh, you mentioned, you know, quarter section, right? So a section is one square mile, one mile by one mile, 640 acres. And a uh, township would be 36 of those, so six miles by six miles. And then townships make up the county. And of course, through the Homestead Act, I mean, it, it, it opened up much of the country to homesteaders. I mean, all the way out to Alaska, right? That's right. Is there a rough number of how many people took advantage of the Homestead Act? Millions of people took advantage of the Homestead Act, although only about... 50% were successful in proving up the land, so making it that five years, meeting all the requirements, and earning the patent or the deed to the land. Uh, in total, about 1.6 million received land under the Homestead Act. And of course, some, some areas were a lot easier to, to prove up, as it were. I mean, here in southeastern Nebraska, I mean, it, it's really quite bucolic. I mean, we've got prairie here, we've got stands of trees, we've got creeks and whatnot, and then you compare that to North Dakota, where the, the soil's not that good and you don't have that much moisture. For sure, yeah, a lot of different situations, scenarios, different conditions at different times. You know, trying to homestead in, say, the middle of a dust bowl or a, a locust swarm would be a lot different than homesteading in, say, southeast Nebraska in a relatively good conditions. So what did, what did Daniel do here? Was he a, a farmer and raised crops or was he into um, cattle? So Daniel, like a lot of homesteaders, certainly wore a lot of different hats, but uh, as a homesteader, his, his main task to earn that land would be, yeah, to, to farm. Uh-huh. What type of crops? So there's actually something called a, a land entry case file. It's a documentation that the government kept as a homesteader was meeting their requirements and you had to list out what crops you were growing so you can learn exactly what a homesteader was doing what they were building what they were growing and so Daniel we know uh, not only was he growing uh, wheat and corn uh, but he also had an orchard several hundred fruit trees as well I know over there at the um, the, the Heritage Center there's a, a small representative orchard. Exactly. Those weren't any of his original trees, though. No, those have been planted more recently, but but it is, like you said, uh, a nod to his historic orchards, and of course visitors are encouraged to go and, and harvest that. Really? For free. Mm-hmm. So where you want to take a look at the Prairie Plaza here? Sure. So I enjoy this spot for the, the sense of size that it gives. You know, 160 acres, it's, it's hard to get a sense of 
what exactly that number means. You know, as, as an abstract, as a quarter section, it doesn't sound like much, but when you stand here and look out at the prairie and think about homesteaders, about what it meant to arrive on this land and turn this into a productive farm, you know, just the, the sheer amount of labor that that took, I think is impressive to me. Yeah, when you think about the, the, the lack of today's technology. I mean, exactly. A lot, a lot of horse work out there. So everything we're looking at, was that part of his uh, homestead? Mm -hmm. So the trees over here, all the way to the Homestead Heritage Center, everything that you see here was his 160 acres. So we've got about 100 acres of restored tall grass prairie, and the park started restoring this back in the 1930s when we first became a park. And then another 60 acres of woodland over there. Mm -hmm. His 160 acre boundary. What type of trees? It's a mix of hardwood and softwood, or is it all hardwood? Uh, so it, it is a, a mixed, uh, but a lot of cottonwood in there. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Any oaks? Some. And of course, the, the wildlife loves it. Uh, you can hear the, the birds singing and calling and whatnot. Um, what else? Other type of wildlife you got through here? Deer, I imagine? Quite a few deer. We'll do an annual deer survey, and I believe that our, our last survey indicated that the population is continuing to trend upward, so doing... Doing pretty well. You need, some, you need some predators. <laughs> I suppose so. A any black bear? <laughs> no. No. Not not in southeast Nebraska. Well, you never know. They're they're recolonizing everywhere. Although last year there was a particularly lost moose in the area. Really? Really? That, that it does seem unusual. Nebraska is not known for its moose population. No, I, I want to say that uh, that moose was from South Dakota. Wandered down from South Dakota. Hmm. So, you know, we've got the Homestead Act, and of course, you know, it, it helped um, um, populate much of the country. But there are some stories that we don't often hear about. And um, one, of course, I understand you've been looking into is the, the role of black homesteaders and, and how much they took advantage of the Homestead Act. That's right. Yeah, we've been working for the last several years on the Black Homesteader Project with several of our partners, uh, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the Center for Great Plains Studies, and learning more about black homesteaders and their experiences across the country. And, and what can you tell us about that? I mean, freed slaves, I imagine, but... Um it took a different sort of, of individual in those days, I would think, to to come out here and try and acquire a tract of land for themselves when, you know, the country had just come through a divisive war. Yeah, absolutely. So the Homestead Act, of course, was passed in the middle of the Civil War in 1862 and took effect in 1863. And what some of our visitors may not realize is that the same day the Homestead Act took effect, which is January 1st, 1863, is the exact same day that the Emancipation Proclamation took effect, right? Uh, so after the war, with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments officially abolishing slavery and guaranteeing citizenship for African Americans, African Americans were legally allowed to homestead, and there was a special law, uh, an amendment to the Homestead Act, basically, uh, the Southern Homestead Act of 1866, 
providing millions of acres of land in the southern states. So in Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, uh, millions of acres of land for African Americans to homestead there. And so many African Americans in those states uh, did take advantage of that law, but with some of the conditions in uh, post-war Reconstruction South, it could be difficult to take advantage of the Homestead Act. Uh, by law, yes, they were allowed to and encouraged to homestead, but with the racism that many faced, with uh, both, you know, perhaps they were going to a land office that had someone that maybe might make it difficult to homestead, or, or just the fact that there were only so many land offices. If you're traveling 40, 50, 60 miles to get to one, and didn't have a lot of money, didn't have the, the tools that you needed uh, to be able to meet those requirements on land that may or may not have been the best quality land in the area. The original intent, there were 66 million acres of land opened up, and while thousands of African Americans did take the opportunity to homestead, uh, it wasn't the sweeping reform that maybe it was intended, mm -hmm. you know, trying to give millions of people land. And so many then looked to the Midwest and Western states to homestead to leave the South and pursue homesteading in other areas. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about. I mean, with the Homestead Act passing in 1863, of course, the Civil War was still raging on. I wouldn't imagine many blacks would decide to you know, try and homestead in Mississippi or Alabama. So any stories that you've come across of, of blacks moving out of the Southwest during the Civil War to head up to, you know, the, the Union states to homestead? So one of the most famous stories, and it does come after the, the Civil War, is migration to uh, Nicodemus, Kansas. And that was one of the largest and most enduring black homestead settlements. Uh, There's a, a large group in the 1870s that sought the homestead in Kansas. There was a, a colony is one of the right. terms sometimes used. Right. Uh, so a, a basically a designed settlement saying, we're going to go as a group, we're going to claim land under the Homestead Act. And so hundreds head out to Nicodemus and build a community, you know, sort of like what you see here. When, when they got to Nicodemus, it, it was prairie, right? And so they cleared it, they built a town, there were uh, hundreds of people out there that were homesteading together. And uh, so Nicodemus, of the various black homesteading colonies or settlements uh, that we've been studying over the last several years, uh, that is the only one today that is still a uh, black homesteading community. Yeah. And it kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it kind of went downhill because of the decision where to put the rail line. And that's a story that, you know, affects all sorts of homesteading history, you know, any community, black or white, if you were passed by by the railroad, it would be tough to persist after that, because not only do you not have the railroad, you're competing against the nearby town that does, right? Right, right. So aside from Nicodemus, any, any individual stories of black homesteaders striking out and not just um, trying to prove up their 160 acres after five years, but succeeding? So, quite a few different stories, and we've got dozens of them available for uh, visitors on our park website, which of course is, you know, nps.gov home, and, you know, stories in 
in the Great Plains, but also in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida. We're working with the descendants of some of these homesteaders where they will graciously help share their stories so that other people can learn about what those experiences were like. And I imagine they probably faced, uh, in some cases, ostracization or, um, you know, even whites trying to drive them off the land. So in some places, there certainly was that. Uh, I think one of the ones that comes to mind is the uh, community of Empire, Wyoming, where one of their uh, community members was arrested and died in, in custody. And that was just a, a huge blow to the community. And, you know, the, the racism that they encountered, uh, a few years after that, the community sort of dissolved and moved elsewhere. Where in Wyoming was it? Empire, yeah. uh, which is uh, right on the border of um, Wyoming and Nebraska. Yeah. No, I spent nine years in Wyoming. I'm not familiar. So that was a, a black community? So that was one of the, the several black homesteader communities that we've been studying. Mm -hmm. Wow, sounds interesting. So, Jonathan, um, another aspect of the Homestead Act is, you know, it was billed as free land for Americans, and yet you've had Native cultures living on this landscape for millennia. How did those two weave together, if you will? Yeah, I think that that's a very important part of the story to talk about here at Homestead, is that for many people, they saw the Homestead Act as as opportunity. Oh, there's this, this free land, and I can make a new life for myself on this homestead. But that free land isn't free, right? It, it comes with a cost. Mm -hmm. And for Native Americans, that land had been home for untold generations. And so... Native land dispossession uh, is, is a huge, huge impact by the Homestead Act and by other public land laws. You know, those hundreds of millions of acres of land that were offered up for free, it came from Native Americans all across the country. And so in some parts of the country, uh, Native tribes had been removed, forcibly removed, maybe decades before the Homestead Act, but there's still that direct connection. In other places, perhaps some of the, the most iconic, most famous homesteading stories, like the Oklahoma land rush, you know, the, the Sooners and the Boomers, right? Uh, that is directly tied to the Dawes Act and the taking of Native American land to open up under the Homestead Act. And so uh, I think that our park here does a pretty good job of making sure that visitors see that side of the story and understand that side of the story. Well, did you also have instances where Native Americans had been displaced from the land that they lived on, later taking advantage of the Homestead Act to, in essence, buy it back? So that's a great question. Uh, yes, yeah, sort of. So the Homestead Act was open to anyone who was eligible to become a citizen. Now, Native Americans could become citizens by essentially renouncing their, their tribal citizenship. And so it did occasionally happen where Native Americans could homestead under the Indian Homestead Act. But generally speaking, you don't see a ton of that. Uh, and Native Americans don't 
uh, have citizenship in the United States until 1924. And so I, I believe that the park is working on developing those, those stories further? Uh, absolutely, yes. We work with uh, several tribal nations that were here in the area to make sure that we are you know, telling that part of the Homestead Act's history in a sensitive and comprehensive way. And I imagine that includes tribal voices? Absolutely. Where, yeah. can, where can folks learn more about that? So we, we've got that in our interpretation, in our introductory film, in our exhibits, but also on the park website as well. So what other stories um, can people come upon if they come to visit Homestead National Historical Park? I mean, it's a, you've got trails going through this landscape. It's a gorgeous landscape, uh, at least now in, in summertime. Um, I'm sure it takes on a different appeal in, in middle of winter. But um, what more can you tell us about Homestead to, to help educate people before they get here? Sure. Well, we like to say that you know homesteading is millions of people, millions of stories, right? And, and we're all about sharing as many of those stories as we can. Uh, one of the things that uh, I find personally very compelling, very important to share, is the story of women homesteaders and, and their role in participating in, in homesteading. So women were legally allowed to homestead in their own names. Uh, if you were the head of a household, you could homestead. And across the 120 years of the Homestead Act and the millions of people uh, claiming land, uh, somewhere between 10-15% of them were women claiming land in their own name. And a project that I've been working on with that is women homesteaders' role in the suffrage movement and how in many ways they are the ones leading the charge in bringing suffrage to the homesteading states in the western and midwestern parts of the country. And was there um, a particular part of the country like you were just talking about? So most of the, the states to grant women the right to vote were homesteading states. So, you know, Wyoming, Montana, uh, the Dakotas, Utah. If you looked at a map of where women's suffrage came first, almost all of them are going to be homesteading states. And these women who, who were homesteading were, you know, participating in every level of that, you know, all the way up to the very top to uh, the people doing the groundwork, you know, at the grassroots level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. And so if, if somebody from Wyoming wanted to research homesteading in their state, can they do that through your website? They sure can. And then find individual stories possibly? So uh, you can find individual stories, and you can also find your own family stories, right? So we have uh, a research station set up here at the park and links to those same uh, websites on our park page. So if you have, you know, an ancestor that was a homesteader, you can not only find uh, where that homestead was located, you can find their documentation, you can find the patent, the deed to the land, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Great resource. Again, that's nps.gov slash home. Well, let's, let's continue a walkthrough here, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about the, the prairie that's uh, under restoration, the tall grass prairie. Yeah, so our tall grass prairie here, like you said, is restored. So historically, when uh, Daniel Freeman was homesteading here, of course, this, this would have been cleared, planted, plowed, right? Uh, when we became a park, one of the very first things that we started doing 
was to start restoring this. So this is actually the oldest restored prairie in the National Park Service and the uh, second oldest restored prairie in the nation. I want to say the oldest is up in Wisconsin, uh, dating back to the 20s. Ours started in the 30s. And so from then till today, you know, one of the, the big focuses for our natural resources staff has been to manage the prairie here. So we'll do you know, regular prescribed burns and trying to control the invasive species. That must be a real challenge, um, invasive vegetation. Absolutely. So what type of, uh, you know, we're walking through the, the tall grass prairie and what's, what sort of plants can you point us at? So there are quite a few different species. I, I want to say that uh, it's like oh, 118 different species. And full disclosure, you're talking with the historian. <laughs> so if you want to talk You're not a our, botanist too? <laughs> I'm not a botanist too. Uh, you know, we do have quite a bit of uh, uh, big blue stem, which is one of the most common, uh, maybe 30-40% of the overall uh, matter of the prairie. But, you know, tons of, tough, uh, tons of different species. The big thing is, is biological diversity, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, every year, in preparation for those burns, we'll also do seed collection on the prairie to make sure that we maintain that biological diversity. And of course, if people, wants to, people want to cheat when they come to the park, uh, they can pick up a brochure on the prairie plant list and colors and whatnot. And That's right. Best times that they bloom. So personally, my favorite is actually the, the late summer, early fall. I love the goldenrod on the prairie. So just like a, a sea of that bright, vivid yellow covering most of the 100 acres here. I think it's just absolutely beautiful. Would you say that's the predominant wildflower you have here, or, or just uh, that's, so that's there, when it comes to bloom? There are definitely different seasons of wildflower, right? There's the, the uh, early season, uh, sort of the, the cooler uh, season, and the later season, the, the warmer season, so, you know, depending on when you come to the park, there's not like a, you know, this is the time, but you'll see different things for sure if you come in June versus September. Sure. And I imagine, I mean, uh, people who want to see a particular wildflower in bloom can, can go to the park website and figure that out through the, the prairie wildflower list. Right, exactly. We have that located on our website as well. So where do these trails go? I mean, they kind of weave throughout the, uh, the prairie here. You've got the, the Homestead Heritage Center so on the east and then the Education Center to the west. This trail that we're on right now, uh, believe it or not, is actually a historic place. It's, it's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a, a cultural landscape here at the park. So this is the historic Grain Growers Highway, or the old freight road. So. Dating back to when Daniel Freeman was on the land, uh, this was a, you know, like a, a trade route, right? Mm -hmm. So wagons would be going up and down this road. Uh, back when he was homesteading here, he had a, a guest registry. So if someone was running through the property, you'd have him sign the logbook. He was uh, very big on self-promoting all his, his stationery, his letters, you know, first homesteader, Daniel Freeman. Uh, but yeah, so th this trail here, this half mile between the two paths, the uh, 
uh, Education Center, Heritage Center. This is the Grain Growers Highway. We've got uh, about three miles total on the prairie, a mile and a half loop around the entire prairie. We've got the uh, Woodlands Loop Trail going back into the Cottonwoods back there. Then we've got a loop over by the Osage Orange, which is another. So that's pretty unique in that that is a, a living stand of trees, right? That is also considered a, a cultural resource, a, both a natural but also a historic landscape. So you can see how they're all planted in a line, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those Osage Oranges were planted as a boundary, but also as sort of a, a living fence. They were grown together. You can see where they're, they're tight there to interlock as a barrier for livestock. Did, did Freeman plant those? So this particular stand uh, dates to after his passing. Uh, while still in use as a farm, the family homestead, uh, but those date to about the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you asked about the, the Freeman households, right? So we are actually just walking past where it'd be right now. Uh, the first Freeman cabin would have been right around here. And, of course, it, it's no longer standing today, which is why we have the Palmer Eppert cabin up at the Heritage Center, which... Visitors often ask, you know, is that is that a real cabin? So it is a real homesteader cabin. It's uh, built by a homesteader, uh, George Washington Palmer. Now it was moved here to the site, but it represents, you know, a southeast Nebraska homesteader cabin from the same time period as Daniel Freeman. Yeah. Any idea how big Freeman's cabin was? Uh, so his cabin, I want to say, was 12 by 16 feet. Pretty small. Pretty small. Uh, and a lot of the, the homesteader cabins were. And, you know, you think about the family size back then, you have 8, 10, 12, 14 people living in a cabin that size. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder, though, I mean, with the, the forests around here, it's not like they lacked for building materials. And so they did upgrade. I mentioned their, their brick house as well, right? So they had a couple of different structures here on the property over the, the 60 years that the family lived here. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for the tour around uh, the, the property here. It's really a fascinating place, and uh, you can't get it all in a half-day visit. I think uh, um, you could spend a couple days here, depending on your, your interest between uh, uh, wildflowers and botany or, or American history or, or um, family history. Absolutely. Stop at Homestead National Historical Park and you'll likely find yourself pulled deeply into the resources it offers, as I was. Whether you simply want to enjoy the tall grass prairie with its dozens and dozens of wildflower species, add to your birding life list by looking for the nearly 90 species of woodland and grassland birds that make their home here, or by delving into the history of homesteading in America that officially ended in 1988 when Kenneth Deerdorf proved up his claim to 50 acres in Alaska. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Homestead is a great stop on your tour of the national park system. Whether you're interested in the national parks movement in the United States or are curious about your family's homesteading background. We'll return to Homestead in the coming weeks with a feature story that takes a deeper look at the park and some of the projects park staff is working on. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. 
As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Interior Federal Credit Union supports its members with some of the best rates in the country. Check out their new certificate rates and competitive loan rates at interiorfcu.org. Set your money aside for a specific period of time and maximize your earnings with terms up to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate once during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.